New York City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is Vine Pair. And today on the podcast, we are kicking off Bubbly Week by talking about all of our favorite sparkling wines. But the one sparkling wine we're not going to talk about is champagne. And Zach, why is that? Because everyone already knows champagne is great. And I don't really feel like there's much more to say than that. If you like champagne, awesome. I do. Drink it. But there's so much more in the world of sparkling wine than just champagne. And we really wanted to talk about some of the less heralded um, or less appreciated or just less known. Um, or more affordable. <laughs> that too, yeah. Um, sparkling wine out there in, in the world because, you know, we're, we're, we're surrounded by uh, really, really good sparkling wine. And, and yet I think a lot of people are, you know, understandably maybe hesitant to try some of what's out there. Um, and, and I think let's, let's start by talking about, to me, what is the great, uh, a great alternative if you, let's say, have champagne tastes, but as we say in the industry, Cremant budget, which is a uh, Cremant. So yes, I think Cremant is awesome, but I think a lot of people have no clue what it is. So before we even start talking about Cremant, Let's define it, right? So Cremant is sparkling wine uh, made in France using the method Champenois or the traditional method. Um, Zach, you are the certified sommelier here out of the two of us. So uh, could you please define for me what that means when I say that someone's using method Champenois? I can, and I'm going to try and keep this as brief as I can because this shit gets really boring really quickly. But basically, the the way you make uh, sparkling wine sparkling is you, in one way or another, trap carbon dioxide in the wine. The cheapest way to do it is you do it like you're making soda and you inject it. Um, and we're probably not going to talk about any of those wines because uh, they're not good. Uh, the second way you do it is you... Um, uh, do a fermentation, a second fermentation. So you make a still wine, and then you reintroduce yeast and sugar in a closed environment. And because the yeast, as they uh, metabolize that sugar and produce um, alcohol, they also produce carbon dioxide. And if you do it in an environment that's closed, then that carbon dioxide can't uh, escape into the atmosphere and instead is trapped in the wine. You can do that in a large vessel, which is usually referred to as the Charmat method, and then you bottle that. That's how things like uh, Prosecco are made. Uh, or you do it in each individual bottle, which is the way that champagne has to be made, as well as Cremant and a number of other sparkling wines around the world. It's generally believed that that secondary fermentation in the bottle produces um, finer bubbles, maybe a little more, a little bit more elegant wine, and uh, because you're leaving those yeast uh, cells in contact with the wine for some period of time, anywhere from, say, 10 to 12 months to any number of years, uh, they also affect the resulting flavor. But we will try and avoid that rabbit hole too much. So basically- yeah, that's, that's method- too much of a rabbit hole. <laughs> so method champenoise or, or the traditional method basically just means that that secondary fermentation has happen- happened in the bottle that you're, you are then opening when you drink it. Um, and it has never been uh, rebottled from a larger vessel, um, like I said, as most um, other, as many other sparkling wines are. I think like the biggest misconception too, or or thing people don't know, it's not a misconception, but just the thing people are unaware of is that almost every region in France, I think every region in France makes a sparkling wine and they make a Cremant and you can actually find some pretty incredible, really famous wine regions that make sparkling that can rival the wine we said we're not going to talk about. Um, in quality, but because it's not known or because the region is... So for example, Burgundy, right? Burgundy makes some really beautiful Cremants, but they're famous for you know red and white Burgundy. So people would not normally flock to them for their Cremants. Same with Bordeaux. Bordeaux happens to make Cremant. You know, the Loire, uh, 
you know, you know the the south of France. So you get these incredible wines that just are crazy affordable. I mean, and I'm talking like 15, 20 bucks. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Cremant is like is usually my first stop when someone's like, well, I like sparkling wine, but I can't afford champagne. I'm like, great, let's start with Cremant. Um, the cool thing about it is there are real distinct differences in the various regions, um, largely because different varietals are often used. So like, for example, if you really like champagne and you don't want to deviate too far from that, then as Adam mentioned, uh, Cremant de Bourgogne or Cremant from Burgundy is a great bet because you're working with um, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, the two principal grapes in champagne, um, as are the grapes that are used in uh, Cremant de Bourgogne. If you like different grapes, like Cremant de Loire can be great. You can get some beautiful rosé Cremants that are made with Cabernet Franc or uh, sometimes Pinot Noir. You can also get... um, sparkling uh, wine made from uh, Chenin Blanc and and, um, to some extent Sauvignon Blanc, although that's pretty rare. Um, Or my personal favorite for Cremant, Alsace. It's the preeminent white wine region in the world, or not in the well, maybe in the world, but certainly in France, in my opinion. And uh, unsurprisingly, also makes excellent, excellent sparkling wine and is probably the one region that takes it really seriously. Because the other thing, as Adam said, is Cremant in most other regions is an afterthought. It's what they do with the unripe grapes. Now, there are exceptions or individual producers who are really dedicated to it. But by and large, I think you can say that Cremant is delicious, but it's not the focal point of any of the other regions. But in Alsace, they do take it extremely seriously, um, as I had the opportunity to find out when I was there not that long ago. Oh, yeah, you were there. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I, yeah, I think I think Cremant is for sure the, the, the region that I tell people the most. Now, if they tell me instead that they are looking for a wine that is almost identical to champagne. Uh, the sparkling wine I get really excited about because I think most people don't know about it is Franciacorta. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, so Franciacorta is a you know a DOCG in uh, right DOC or DOCG 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 that's right in in Italy that makes uh, you know sparkling wine using. The same grapes that they use to make to make champagne. So these Italians brought in Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay, uh, and are growing them in Italy and making this really amazing, you know, sparkling wine. It is it is more expensive, I think, than a lot of Cremants, um, but it is much cheaper than champagne, uh, and you can get these incredible, incredible wines uh, for you know a lot less money that are just pretty baller. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's interesting to me is, so my understanding, so Franciacorta is uh, located in Lombardy in uh, sort of north central Italy. Um, and what you find there is actually a lot of similar soil types to what you find in Champagne, a lot of chalk and limestone. Um, so unsurprising that uh, varietals that are uh, obviously most prevalent in Champagne also flourish in Franciacorta and that the resulting wines have a lot of similarities. Um, I agree uh, that it's a it's an awesome option if you want to try something very Champagne-like that is not specifically Champagne. I also think there are two other regions, one in Italy and one in Spain, that are actually really worth considering too. So um, Alta Longa, which is a more recent uh, designation, another DOCG, this is in uh, Piedmont in northwestern Italy. Um, but again, focusing there specifically on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Um, and uh, I was actually recently there as well. It was a long trip. Um, and you got a chance to to see some of the producers there who are making really, really beautiful sparkling wines. And because uh, that uh, appellation is even newer than Franciacorta, again, the price uh, to quality ratio is really, really good. Uh, the wines aren't quite as cheap as Cremant, but I would bet you could find some really good stuff on the store shelves and for $25, maybe $30. So you're going up a price point, but not to the point of maybe where Franciacorta is in many cases, and certainly not where uh, most Champagne is. And then my other is Cava. Now, Cava yes. as a whole... <laughs> 
as a whole can be a lot of different things. And there's a lot of very fine but inexpensive kava out there. But at the Reserva and Grand Reserva level, man, you get some exceptional wine. And what's cool about kava to me is you get this interesting hybrid between some traditional uh, champagne or sparkling wine varietals and some indigenous uh, Spanish varietals like Macabeo, Chirello, things like that that you see um, – intermixed or even sometimes used exclusively to produce these wines. And as a result, you just get these incredible, um, these really, really kind of bright, high acid, laser focused sparkling wines. But but if they do spend some time aging on the lees, um, a degree of richness that is reminiscent of the region we are not talking about. I mean, I think, dude, so it's funny. You were just uh, in Alsace and also uh, in Alta Longa. I was just in Penedes. Um, and I think Cava is amazing. And the really cool thing about the Spaniards that make Cava uh, or the Catalans, uh, they're, I'm sorry, they're not yeah, Spaniards. Do the not Catalans offend them. <laughs> is they will actually tell you that they invented the traditional method, right? That it's actually not <laughs> the, the makers in the region we're not talking about that invented this method of making this kind of wine, but it was them. And I think it's pretty amazing because one of the things that a lot of wine geeks get really uh, excited about is vintage champagne, right? So, and the cool thing is that there's so much awesome vintage cava. Um, and it's, again, exceedingly affordable. Uh, you can try really crazy wines. I, I When I was there, I got to have like a 2002 vintage Grand Reserve of cava, that was just stupid good. Um, and it is, again, as you're saying, from really cool grapes that are not the same as the the typical Chardonnay, uh, Pinot Noir variety that you get quite often with with the region that will not be named. Um, and when it when they age, and some of them age for a really long time, that yeast, those dead leaves, which we which are just dead leaves, yeast cells, do some crazy things to that wine, man. And I think um, that's what makes it so cool. But the but the other wine, I think that's really fun to talk about, which is the sparkling wine that is the most popular in America that we can't forget about, right? Is Prosecco. Oh, absolutely. Um, I th- I think that like for me, Prosecco is like the wine to drink at the beginning of every meal. Like if you want sparkling wine, I think that man, every 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 restaurant that wants to make some extra cash should be offering Prosecco the second you sit down. Hey, by the way, like uh, would you like a ten dollar glass of Prosecco? And and the ones that I know that do this do this really well. I think the Italians have a great aperitivo culture around Prosecco, right? This idea that we we have it, it's really it's really you know, light, fruity, fun. Um, Prosecco is bomb for that. I think it it can hurt uh, the Prosecco market in a little bit for being that delicious and that, you know, it's not a wine we would normally pay more than 30 bucks a bottle for. But I think that's okay. I, I think that Prosecco doesn't need to be more than $30 a bottle. I think Prosecco right in that, you know, that sweet spot of 15 to 20 bucks a bottle is is where it really shines, is where you get this really uh, incredible wine from the Glera grape that is just absolutely delicious. Yeah, what's what's fun to me about Prosecco is that it has a lot of different faces. So there's definitely that like very approachable, fun, bright, maybe a tiny bit off dry, um, sort of very fresh tasting Prosecco that's out there and that everyone knows and loves. And yeah, is the perfect start to a meal. It's great for just, hey, you know, I want to have something to drink, but I don't want to drink anything too serious. Prosecco, perfect. It's hot out. It's not hot out. I don't care. Um, But what is interesting is um, having recently been in the Prosecco region as well, um, is that you have this interesting um, emergence of more high-end Prosecco um, and some specific sub-appellations. Oh, God, I'm going to butcher it. And I practice this for the podcast and everything, uh, but Conigliano Valdobbiadine, 
I'm not going to say that again, uh, is a is a subappellation within uh, the broader Prosecco that refers to um, some of the more uh, hillside vineyards. And so this is my little Prosecco tip for people. So there's the word that you'll find on Prosecco bottles. It's the word Rive, spelled R-I-V-E, and it's a local dialect term for hill. And so there are, I think, 43 different named Rives in the Prosecco uh, region. And um, to be able to put that on a label, uh, all the fruit has to come from that specific hillside. You can't blend across various ones. And so you can find some really pretty reasonably priced uh, Prosecco uh, that's going to be – and if you see that word Rive on the on the label, you can be pretty confident that it's a wine that at the very least the winemaker is taking seriously because they're not just blending in uh, batches from maybe their various holdings, but they are choosing to produce this wine as a uh, single, if not exactly vineyard, single hillside wine um, and they can be really delicious and completely not completely different they're still recognizably prosecco but definitely more complex and a little bit more worthy of your thought than just a thing to have while you're thinking about what you actually want to drink i actually didn't know the rive part i mean obviously you know there's there's a few uh hills in in prosecco that are very famous including the most famous the cartizze um which i've gotten to climb and is super cool but i didn't know that you could find other hills by looking for the word rive that's really really cool thanks for the geeky wine tips zach uh you know i've got to be good for a few things every podcast uh so, well yeah that's that is true that's why that's why i keep you around um <laughs> so the the other you know region that i think we're, we're not talking about enough yet uh is um the american sparklers uh i think we i think we decided at one point in time you know there was this whole thing where uh, american wine producers started calling their wines champagne and you know france got all upset about that and said no no no, you can't do that we have a we have a trade agreement with you and you need to stop calling it champagne there's a few people weirdly grandfathered in but i thought a few years ago we had decided that across the board we were going to call them american sparklers i don't know if that's exactly true or not or we're just you know, going to refer to as American American sparkling wine. But again, there, there's some really awesome places in the country that make amazing sparkling wine. And the one I think, one of the ones that, that no one seems to know about, because obviously there's awesome stuff coming out of California. Zach, I'll let you tell me more about that because you, you know that region probably better than me being closer to it. But one that always surprises me is New Mexico. Oh, um, yeah. You know, and especially, uh, you know, a few producers in particular that are just making terrific stuff that again is, you know, 10, 15 bucks. I think, and I think that that's the overall theme of what we're talking about today, which is that like, there is that one region that's incredibly expensive, but then there are all these other regions that because of that one region existing are all super high quality and affordable. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think what's cool about sparkling wine in America is that it is something that can be made in almost every wine region in the country with a few exceptions and there's some places where it's maybe not economically practical to make but you know the one of the things about making sparkling wine is you kind of want colder cooler sites you know you want your grapes to be really high in acid you're not really trying to make a delicious still wine where you might want a little bit more balance but you're trying to make something really kind of tart and lean and then you're kind of adding the balance through the secondary fermentation however you happen to do it so yeah certainly california produces the bulk of um, well the wine in this country uh, but certainly that includes sparkling wine um, and there's there's great sparkling wine um, you know certainly in uh, northern california you know kind of the russian river valley area certain parts of sonoma um, in the cooler parts like carneros or on the coast um, but i actually think uh, along with new mexico i'm actually uh, i would add um, a couple of other places to, to look at so there's some really good sparkling wine coming out of Oregon, unsurprisingly, especially the Willamette Valley. Uh, you think Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, again, these classic sparkling wine grapes. That's principally what's grown in that region. Um, and there are some producers that are pl- 
playing around with um, some more of that um, vintage dating and, and longer aging time, but also lots of sort of very uh, fresh style sparkling wine. Um, and then I actually, you know, the, the couple of wines that I've had from Texas that are sparkling wines, I've been pretty impressed with too. Um, you know, maybe not surprising. It, you know, the, the wine country is pretty close to New Mexico's wine country. So, so a similar kind of, um, idea there where, where you're getting, um, you know, we don't think of, of Texas as cold, but actually there are some parts in the hill country that, that are pretty cool and, and not real great for wine production with the exception of sparkling wine. Um, and so I think that's really fun. I think it, it's great to see, um, sparkling wine from those places. I actually, Adam, I know you I didn't you know are... anything about Texas, to be honest with you. I had, ah. I had no clue that Hill Country was making sparkling wine. I actually, oh, yeah. I, I am gu- guilty as charged, was uh, really the person who thought, yeah, it was too hot. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. Well, most, I definitely, they're not making sparkling wine in Houston, let's be clear. Um, but I was going to say, you know, you, you are someone who spent some time up in the Finger Lakes in New York. Is that uh, as another kind of very cool climate site? Are people making sparkling wine they're up there? They're starting to. A few making it uh, really well. Um, you know, not, it hasn't taken over yet. Again, I think it's just such a baby region. Um, and with any baby region, you have to figure out whether or not it's affordable. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that sort of, I don't want to say hurts uh, these other sparkling wine producing regions, but like really, I think that that's what makes me really love a lot of these other sparkling wine producing regions is for most of these people, it's really a labor of love. They really do love sparkling wine. That's why they're producing it because a lot of them aren't making a lot of money off of it because we have this bias in this country and across the majority of the world for that one region we're not talking about. And because we have that bias, a lot of producers say, well, like I can I can probably make really good sparkling here, but most people aren't going to buy it or aren't going to think it's worth the, t- you know, the amount that I'm charging for it because it does take a lot of time uh, because they just think, well, I could get champagne and look, I, I've been guilty of that before too. I've, I've seen certain, I've been in certain regions of the country where a few producers are making excellent sparkling wine, but they'll ask them the price and they're like, oh yeah, I sell this for like 75 bucks, 80 bucks. I'm like, I'm really sorry, you know, sir or ma'am, but I can buy really good, you know, the region that should not be named wines for this price. And you, you maybe shouldn't make sparkling. Um, but those that are doing it are doing it really well. Um, the other region I think that's doing it really well and has done it really well for a long time, obviously, is Sonoma. Um, you know, Sonoma has awesome access to Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Uh, and so they make really, really good uh, American sparkling wine. It can get more, more pricey as well, though, just because, you know, the region is so famous um, in America. But they make excellent sparkling. Yeah. And you can tell that it's a serious region because you look at what's happened there, which is that several prominent champagne houses from France have uh, either built or purchased wineries um, in that area to make sparkling wine with a recognition that having a, a, a second brand, an American, uh, not just a presence in America, but a, an American uh, wine to sell definitely helps uh, kind of get more of that market share here in the U.S. I was going to say, you know, the yeah, no, you're right. The, the other one, two other little uh, sparkling wine thoughts. So one is one other place that I think makes excellent sparkling wine uh, that I've had, which is not super widely known, is South Africa. So there's a long tradition of uh, what's known as Cap Classique, uh, which is, again, another champagne method, sparkling wine um, that's made in South Africa from a few different varietals, um, the classics, but also a lot of Chenin Blanc down there. Uh, and I've had some that are just really, really good. And again, in that like $15 price range, that's really hard to uh, to say anything bad about. Um, and I haven't tried much 
uh, that's got, let's say, a lot of age to it. I'm sure it's out there. I just it doesn't make it to the United States in in most cases. And uh, South Africa is a place I have not traveled. If anyone's out there listening and wants to fly me to South Africa, yes, I will take you up on that offer. Um, <laughs> I will too. <laughs> um, and uh, and then the other sort of just thought that I had about sparkling wine uh, to, to kind of add to this conversation about bubbly week is I also love sparkling wine as the base for a cocktail. And obviously people think about mimosas. Oh, yeah, it's the best. But like to me, one of my favorite things to drink in terms of like a, you know, we talk about sessionable, we talk about just like something that's fun is you can pick almost any spirit or I should say spirit, any liqueur. Pretty much. There's probably some exceptions here. Um, and add it to sparkling wine. And whether you want to go like bitter and you want to, you know, pull out some Amaro or you want to go a little, uh, you know, a little more floral and you want to go like uh, elderflower liqueur or you want to do something, um, you know, a little bit of everything like chartreuse. You can do that. And it's just like it's like the simplest cocktail to make because it's technically a cocktail. But uh, but it's basically just like, you know, you're getting to basically just play Dr. Frankenstein with with your sparkling wine. I think that's an awesome tip I, because, you know, I think one of the things that we we don't think of that often is like sparkling wine can be that sub for that sparkling water, tonic, et cetera, you would normally use. Uh, we actually, in the office uh, last year, we're experimenting with some cocktails for, you know, the bubbly week that happened last year. Uh, and one of the really cool cocktails we made was actually uh, a mojito where you subbed the, um, you know, the sparkling water with sparkling wine. We used Prosecco, but it was really awesome. I mean, it just, it adds a whole different flavor to these cocktails and makes them feel really unique and special. I think that is something that, you know, we, we think of sparkling wine is obviously being a serious wine, which it is, but also forget that it's bubbly and bubbles equals fun. And so that means like, if you want to, you know, put it in a cocktail, if you want to savor the bottle, if you want to, you know, make build champagne towers with them etc or sorry sparkling wine towers with them <laughs> you can um and i and i think that's what you know really everyone has to to really remember and what these regions help us do because because uh you know champagne i'm going to say it has become so high end such a luxury product we take it super seriously and i'm not arguing for completely not taking these other regions seriously or not taking wine in general seriously but wine at the end of the day is super fun and these regions because of their approachability allow us to remember that bubbles are fun and bubbles mean celebration and and that Bubbles can mean celebration on a Wednesday night that we don't have to wait to pop a bubbly, you know, on New Year's Eve. We can pop it when we got home from work because we survived the day or, you know, on a Sunday afternoon with friends because, you know, our kids slept in and let us sleep in, right? Like that's, that's what bubbles can do. And these regions are those regions you should be looking for because they're, they're the, they're the actual fun wines. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. And I think if uh, if everyone drank a little bit more sparkling wine, the world would be a better place. I do too. So, you know, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, in, in honor of Bubbly Week, I'm going to go savor a ton of bottles right now, man. We're going to go through a crazy party a little bit later. Uh, and, you know, then once I'm done drinking tons of Bubbly, uh, maybe I'll hop on another podcast and talk to you next week. Sounds great. Talk to you then and uh, maybe post some pictures on Instagram so everyone can see just how much fun you're having. I will. And everyone else, uh, if you've got favorite sparkling wine out there, let us know. Just uh, shoot an email to podcast at vinepair.com. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patrick, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallet, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.